Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Hey folks, Richard here. Got a very interesting show for you today. And I think what's most interesting about it is the fact that it's really not even my show. I was actually invited on to another podcast named The Obstacle Order. And these guys were gracious enough to bring me on the show and... They wanted to ask me some questions about the things I did, and I wanted to share it with you, so I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot to the guys from Obstacle Order. You might want to check out their podcast. What is up, Obstacle Racing community? This is another episode of the Obstacle Order. We are serving up knowledge and experience hot and fresh for you today. With me, as usual, is my man, Elijah Markstrom. Eli, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good, Phil. How you doing? Pretty good. I'm pretty pumped about this show today. Um, yeah. Got got some got an awesome guy on, and uh, tell us about it, man. What what's going down today? All right. So on the call today, we have a gentleman who I've been following for about a year now. Listening to his podcast, pick, listening to him uh, rant about running mechanics and exercise physiology, which are two of my favorite topics. And uh, his name is Richard Diaz. He is the host of the Natural Running Network podcast. And um, he's transitioned to work with a lot of OCR athletes uh, lately, um, conducting running clinics uh, all around the country. And uh, in particular, he's coaching Hunter McIntyre, who's one of the uh, best Spartan racers uh, on the planet. And uh, Miguel Medina, who who competes in the ultra distances and has been able to actually put more mileage in and stay more healthy with the um, coaching tips that uh, Richard has uh, given him for running technique. So obviously, um, we have a person on the call with a wealth of knowledge, and um, today we're going to try to focus on um, how an OCR athlete can sort of navigate the minefield that is the OCR advice that is given out. We're basically in uncharted territory in a way when it comes to to training for OCR, for what, what should someone be focusing on. And it takes people with a lot of context to apply their pre-existing knowledge to a new like trend, a new endeavor in um, sports. So, um, Richard... Uh, Thank you for coming on, and uh, why don't you please say hello to the audience? Man, you guys are good. <laughs> Listen to that. You guys are like humming along. What a great intro that was. Hey. Um, so, hello. My name is Richard Diaz, and thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks thank a lot for, for coming here. on. I appreciate being here. So, before we jump into like the 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 tough questions I I have prepared for you, I'd like to for you in your own words to start with the basics. Kind of tell us 
tell the audience who may have not heard of you before a little bit about yourself and basically why it's a good idea to listen to what you have to say about uh, running and uh, physiology. You know, it's an interesting question because when I, when I try to give that little summary of who I am and what I do and how I learn to do what I do, it goes back so far. You know what I mean? I'm an old man. That's you know? true. Dude. Um, and it's not it, true that you're an old man. Oh, listen, trust, trust me, brother. Yeah, like no, 70. No. Uh, young guys <laughs> say that all the time. They're all, they're all quick to tell me about how, you know, you're only as old as you feel, blah, 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 blah. But, dude, you know, I'm coming up on 64 years old, and I've been at this a long time. I've been in the business of exercise science for the better part of my life. And, you know, it's just like the, the school of hard knocks. I've been involved in clinical diagnostics for over two decades. I work as a contractor for ESPN Sports doing diagnostics for various athletes that they throw at me for television I've worked with professional hockey players, professional boxers, triathletes, runners. Now, I've really kind of turned my attention towards OCR. I love OCR. I think that the nature of these challenges are so cool. It's like, to me, it's like throwing me a Rubik's Cube, you know, and let me try to figure out how can I quickly get this thing to marry up and be where it needs to be. And so what I bring to the table, I guess, is... A lot of knowledge. I mean, I've, I've just been at this for a very long time. And my day-to-day -day is virtually sitting there looking at the way people move and identifying the flaws in the way they move and figuring out what the quickest paths are to try to right the ship, so to speak, and help them to be better at their efficiency and economy. And, so, and, and, and not to go too deep into this, but let's just narrow it down to two things. I tell people all the time, that what is really critical in performance, any sports performance, is efficiency and economy. And if you approach your work from that perspective, what can I do to become more economical? Well, a lot of it's got to do with how efficient you are. What do I do to make myself more efficient? And those two E's, economy and efficiency, are critical to sport. Now, a lot of people like to believe that having guts, heart, those circumstances, which are obviously important. You know, you got to be able to push on. And as you suggested, Phil's one of those guys likes to push. Um, I get that. But, you know, you need to have some skill sets. You need to have some knowledge. And you need to have some tools. And what I do now is I travel around and I analyze the way people move. And I try to help them get into a better place. And I do that two ways. I do it clinically through identifying their unique metabolic properties and how best to approach training given who they are specifically, not, not some global do-as-I-do, be-as-I-am kind of mentality, but looking at the return on these clinical evaluations and then just basically adding to that mechanical aptitude, physics, and the biggest deal is how gravity interfaces with us. So how's that? That's beautiful. Um, thank you for throwing me under the bus there earlier, Richard. I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm just going to go until my knees give out, and then I'll I'll retire and, and just kind of fade into black. Your knees are um, not giving out, Philip. No, no. I'm. Uh, I, well, I hope not. Um, I had a question actually. Um, when you you said that you were 
I'm you know I'm just going to take this from a layperson's um, point of view. When you look at look at the the common flaws in how people run uh, or their form, I guess, in the in the basic kinesiology of a of a run gait, are there any are there any commonalities that you see, like maybe you know that that stem from just just kind of geeking for a second? That stem from maybe an underactive glute medius that that propagates to an outwardly turned foot. Is there anything that you see across the board that needs to be fixed in in people? Just curious off the top. Well, that's an interesting question, and to answer the first part of the question, the commonalities of the errors that people make, the number one common flaw and principally the worst thing anyone can do as a runner is overstride. So get past whether you're landing on your midfoot or whether you're landing on your heel. If you are putting your foot ahead of your body after you've launched yourself into space, that breaking episode that you create is the culprit behind the majority of injuries, and it is the, the stumbling block to performance. So, you know, addressing the second part of what you said, which I, I really appreciate you saying that, we hear a lot from physical therapists in respect to uh, weaknesses in the glutes and the core and things like this. But try to keep in mind that none of that matters until you've made ground contact. It all comes from the ground. We're just, I tell people all the time, we're like the white stuff in the Oreo. When gravity pushes down on us and the earth pushes up on us, what occurs in the middle is relative to the way we made contact. So I've told people millions of times, and it's kind of tough to digest, but the best core and stabilization exercise you could possibly do is correct the way you run. Because if you spend 15 minutes addressing imbalances in your musculature, in your core, in your glutes, weaknesses, for 15 minutes a day, and then go out and run for an hour and a half poorly, you're going to quickly erase all of the value that you got from the stability exercises and the strength exercises that you put on. So I like to tell people that learn to run properly, and then the rest will take care of itself. Beautiful. That was a delicious analogy also. Thank you with the, the Oreos. Um, <laughs> can you – can you? there was a, a kind of a gem in there. Um, if you overstride on a run step, uh, I, I think I'm butchering it. Would you mind saying that one more time, please? Well, what I said was the biggest culprit behind injuries and stumbling block to performance is overstriding. Just to be clear for those that don't quite understand the, the jargon, if you extend your leg ahead of your center of mass, when you make contact with the ground, you are imposing a braking force because realize that your intent is to move forward and if you throw your leg ahead of your body, it's like driving a spike into the ground before you get to where you've made contact. So, and I tell people this too, is your body becomes late to the party. So your body is not where your foot made contact yet. So you're actually imposing an unstable pillar that you're hoping to land on, which is a real, real problem. And you know what I'm envisioning when you describe that? I know exactly what you mean. Um, I'm envisioning the ultra-slow-mo cameras of crash tests for cars where you see the bumper colliding and the dummies haven't seen the impact force yet, and you can see the force wave kind of travel up. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that's what I'm envisioning uh, every, every time 
I'm thinking about that uh, on on my knees and my ankles. Well, that's uh, my day to day. I, I yeah. when I video people and I slow it down and you know I have clients that are all over the country, some of them on other parts of the world, where they'll send me video clips and then I'll shove it into my analysis software and break things down and put arrows pointing toward the flaws and and you could see very readily the problems that are created relative to the way they've made contact with the ground. And they usually go, oh, dude, I didn't realize it was doing that. Oh, look at that. I can't believe I'm doing that. Right. And, and that's the other end of it is just poor perception. You, what you think you're doing relative to what's actually actually going on a lot of times is, is surprising. So what do you then have them do? Like if you have somebody who's across the country who you know needs to correct their form, do you, you hand them out some drills to work on? Do you just have them be cognizant of the way that they're moving in space? Like how does someone correct like an overstriding uh, scenario? Well, again, this is my day-to-day. And, you know, after a while, you start to develop a shortcut, a path to corrections. And I, I, I found that doing this day after day after day with people, cueing them is unique to the individual. What kind of things you say to someone is relative to how they interpret what you're telling them. The other end of it is like reading a book about proper running mechanics. Everything might be correct in the way they've described what you should be doing and the errors that are associated with what you've done. But it's a completely different thing when you physically have to implement these changes on your own. So like reading a book and going out and trying to correct the problems rarely works. Even watching a video of somebody else explaining what you should be doing rarely works. So what I do is I'll get a video from someone and I point out the flaws, and then I'll send the, the videos back to them and then schedule a call where I'll talk them through the mistakes they're making and physically have them get involved in the process. And I will show that I have some little video clips that I use that are kind of uh, instructional where I talk them through the process. And then after we've kind of gone through that, what I'll have them do is spend about a week or so making some of the corrections or doing some of the homework that I prescribe. And then I have them send me another video to see how far along they've come to see if they're on the right path. And then, you know, we do it. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a lot tougher to do it this way than it is in person. Yeah. When I, when I work with people in clinics, I'm physically putting my hands on them, physically getting involved in the way they're moving, and I guide them. And as soon as something is incorrect, I, I point it out and I, I start to work with them. So it's not an unusual thing to find at the end of the day, I've taken a lot of really bad runners and turned them into some pretty good runners. Now, whether they hang on to it after they leave, that's a function of how studious they are and how well they're, they're willing to put in the time and effort. But I have turned a lot of people around. And, and, and honestly, I don't think it's really even rocket science, to be quite honest with you. It's like it just understanding the kinematics of motion, understanding what's going to occur when you impose these errors, what injuries are going to result. I, I have people who call me and say, oh, my this hurts or my that hurts. And I could almost tell them over the phone without seeing them what is quite likely the, the culprit because of where the forces are imposed. Yeah, and what's interesting about running is as people just go and run. A lot of people without running backgrounds, they say, oh, I want to get in shape, I go run. They don't go learn how to run and then run like you would if you were swimming or something. Like if you, if you swim incorrectly, 
you drowned or you, you die. Barely, yeah. You barely <laughs> move, right? You run incorrectly. Like I, I go down the street and I see people running. I'm like, oh my god, who, who took that like gerbil and spliced it with a giraffe and had him run backwards? Like this is like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But they're just logging the miles, logging the miles, and and so they come to you and maybe they've never even heard someone suggest they run in a different fashion or they never even thought of like running technique, for example. Yeah. Well, I, I get it, man. I, I'm telling you, I think about who I am and I see people going down the road, butchering themselves and it's hard to look at. And the analogy you used, I like, uh, because, uh, back in the day I came up doing triathlon and, uh, I did my last triathlon about two years ago and I'm quick to hire a swim coach because he sees the flaws. In that medium, when you're in water, it's, it's very apparent when things go well versus things going poorly. Where in air, you don't quite feel it quite as readily as you do in that, that thicker medium as water. The point, again, is very good that it's a function of technique. You go see a swim coach, he's going to break you down. He's not going to say, okay... All right, we're going to swim a mile today, and then tomorrow we're going to try to go a mile and a half. And okay, the Wednesday is speed day, so we're going to go faster in the pool for shorter distances. He's going to break you down and tear you apart and help you to learn to push your body through that medium as efficiently as possible because when you get to that place, everything gets easier, speed is easier, your ability to put on more work is easier. And so you're absolutely right. No one seems to give the gravity is necessary to how to run. And, uh, you know, I come from triathlon, as I suggested earlier, and I'm also a bike fitter. The path to all of this for me was I used to do clinical diagnostics on triathletes. I'll do a VO2 test on them on a bike, take them off the bike, and then put them on a treadmill and have them run and find that their, their threshold, their anaerobic threshold, was significantly higher on the run relative to the bike immediately after beating them to death on the bike. That seemed like really odd to me. Why would all of a sudden the guy get really efficient? Why is he so metabolically capable on the treadmill versus the bike? And I would say things like, dude, you got to get a coach. You, you're just butchering that bike because you know your threshold is crap on the bike. And then one day it just kind of dawned on me, well, you're fixed to the bike. Your feet are cleated into the pedals, your, your butt's on that saddle, and your hands are on the handlebars. If those angles are inefficient, if you're kind of bound up on that bike and sitting out inappropriately, you're losing potential output of power that is not going to go away. And so looking at gait, it's the same. I would, I would take a guy and do a bike fit on him, and automatically he starts pulling down two or three miles per hour average faster than he was before I met him. Instantaneous gratification. Now, it's tougher to do that with running because with running, you're open chain. You have to control all the elements. You have to control all the angles. We're on the bike because you're fixed. The bike controls all the angles. So it was like my aha moment. I started to realize, that, wow. Half the problem with these people that are running inefficiently, half the problem why they're not able to stay aerobic is because they're killing themselves with the way they move. So that's why I find it to be so important to measure the metabolic consequence of the work they're doing prior to going in and working on the mechanics. Because then you marry those two elements together and you've got a home run. 
Okay, so this is a perfect opportunity to bring up um, the clinic that you have coming up uh, because you are going to be doing both of those things, which is metabolic testing and then working on some of the actual running technique. So this uh, podcast will be airing um, ahead of the uh, the uh, clinic you're having up here in uh, Pleasanton at the Savage Barn. Okay, and that's July twenty what July twenty third or fourth? Which date? What are the uh, dates? You know what? It, I think it's those two days. Twenty third, twenty fourth. Just tell me the. Uh, is it a Saturday Sunday thing? Yes, sir. Yeah, so you're looking at 23rd and 24th. So we're going to have some timeless, priceless information on this podcast, but it will be serving as a bit of a, almost a promo, if you will, for, for this clinic you have uh, coming up. So, um, what I, you know, we've already delved into a little bit of like why technique is important. I mean, obviously, it's, it's hard to explain the technique and what it should look like um, over a podcast, uh, but you know, you know, you just said like hands-on, you can change someone uh, pretty quickly uh, in terms of their technique and getting them to feel what it's like to run correctly. So, can you can you walk us through like what someone would would expect from the um, the running uh, technique portion of that, as well as, and then we'll go ahead and talk about why metabolic testing is important and explain some of that. Okay. Well, day two is the running mechanic component. So on Sunday, what we'll do, and incidentally, it's a, an optional thing. You can either decide to do both uh, the testing and the clinic or just do the clinic. Uh, clearly, it's less expensive to do just the clinic. But what we do is pretty standard. We introduce ourselves, you know, get to know everybody real quick, and then we have them run. And then as they run, I'll start capturing video of them. And this is on a treadmill, I'm assuming. No, no. This is okay, live. So this is this will be running. Okay. I haven't been there, so I don't know what it's going to look like. There's a little gravel road. Some whatever some it might hill. be. Yeah, we have this happen. We have this happen all the time. I'll show up someplace. Uh, we went to Austin, Texas, and Yancey threw no me. No hills, right? Oh my God! <laughs> y- Yancey threw me into this crazy, crazy place to do our our, our uh, train work. But anyway, what I'll do is I'll um, video everyone. And then after I've captured video from everyone and I've got it buffered into my software, I'll pull them aside and individually, but in group, we'll point out the the commonalities of the flaws that we see. And so everybody's a little unique, but again, as we you know, we use that term commonality because if at the end of the day there's like a handful of things that people tend to do that are really problematic, not like a thousand different things that they do wrong. Um, but we'll go through and we'll point out these flaws. And, and really, this is more a function of getting them to understand that when I say that this is what you're doing, they don't have in the back of their mind, oh, no, man, that's not me. I don't know what you're looking at. But, you know, right. I, 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 it's basically come, come to Jesus. They get a chance to see, okay, that was me. Yep, I was doing that. And then after we've got that all addressed, then we set about going through the proper things to do. And I have to be honest with you, I never, it's not scripted. I don't do the same thing every time I meet people. And this is why a lot of people come to the clinics over and over because they're all different. And I just kind of roll out and whatever rolls out of my mouth and how I ever approach something, it is what it is. Again, I'm old, so I just do what I want to do, right? But um, my goal at the end of that day is to have everybody, at the very least, understanding precisely what they should be trying to do 
as they move forward with their training. Understanding what the flaws are in the way they move personally and what kind of things they need to, to correct them. I also spend time talking about the injuries and what kind of things they can do on their own to help abate some of those reoccurring injuries. And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about shoe selection. We talk about, uh, I, I love, I'm sponsored by Rock Tape, so I like to bust out some tape and show people some taping techniques that are very beneficial in respect to unique uh, sorenesses that come about from transitioning from being a heavy heel striker to a midfoot runner. And you know, we just spend whatever time is necessary to, to land that. And what I forgot to mention is that after we've got the fundamentals out of the way, we then introduce terrain work. And our goal for this upcoming clinic is I'll, I'll bring one of my posse out with me. It's probably going to be Miguel Medina. And Miguel's awesome on uh, dealing with terrain <coughs> technique. You know, we've worked together a lot, him and I, and, and I've helped him quite a lot. And I usually cut him loose on technique, how to run uphill, how to run downhill, um, how to deal with craggy terrain, how to keep from turning your ankle, and which is a big deal in, in OCR. Everybody's busting up their ankles. And so we go through all the technical aspects of running, not just the fundamentals. A lot of people might think, well, you know, I'm an OCR guy. Why do I want to mess around running on a track or running on a flat road? No, it's not like that. It's about flat response. It's about not having any environmental issues to get in the way of proper function and then making it more complicated by getting into terrain. So we cover all those bases in one day. And then um, day one, you know, we kind of got this a little bit backwards, but day one, for those that opt in for the testing, what we like to do is a resting metabolic assessment, which is kind of fun and uh, I don't think people give it the credit that it really deserves, but identifying how many calories your body requires if you do nothing in a 24-hour period. So again, this is analogous to what I re re uh, said a little earlier, it's flat response. We haven't influenced the body with any work. We just, how many calories does my body need? And then we start looking at, through the active met metabolic work, doing the VO2 test, how many calories are we expending? And where are these calories coming from, which is really important? How much fat am I accessing when I'm doing X? How much sugar am I wasting as I'm doing X? How can I make changes in my metabolic properties to improve my fat-burning capacities, not just to get leaner and drop body fat, but become a more efficient endurance athlete? And through this, this, this trial and identification process, it's very empowering. Setting up a, a, a meal plan or nutritional work, having had that test, is, is, is awesome. And identifying what, in fact, is aerobic as opposed to your perception is to being aerobic is also very, very effective. So I like to do that. I, we started doing it, well, let's see. We, we were in Louisiana, and we worked with some really cool OCR folk down there. Really enjoyed being down there in Baton Rouge. And very ambitious folk, and we did resting tests on them, we did active tests on them, and then we set about doing the clinic. But we found that people started to really enjoy that part of the thing, so we, we decided to offer it up as an option. So you get a chance to do a resting test, active test, followed up by the clinic. So, Richard, I have a quick question. Um, 
uh, no, I've done I've done metabolic tests and VO2 tests that involve treadmills. Right. Um, but it, I guess it's a two part two part question for our audience. Um, what is a VO2 test um, from from the the mouth of the of the teacher? Could you explain that to to us, please? And then if uh, if I'm not asking you to give away too many secrets, what a what a resting metabolic test would would look like? Okay. Well, first of all, a VO2 max test conjures up the thought of somebody working to their maximum potential. And in a perfect world, that would be accurate because VO2 max connotates the maximum amount of oxygen your body can process relative to your mass, your body weight, in kilos per minute. Okay. So, for example, you always hear, when you hear VO2 max, people talk about Lance Armstrong. Or they used to anyway. And because he had a really high VO2 score, I think he blew like an 84. So that would suggest 84 um, liters of oxygen, excuse me, 84 milliliters of oxygen for every kilo of his body weight per minute. So that's the amount of oxygen he's translating through his, his system. Like through his bloodstream? Through his bloodstream, into the muscle, in and out of the lungs, into the heart. And so, I mean, we can get on to a lot of detail with that, but what I like people to understand is that the VO2 score, for the most part, is not nearly as important as one might think. What's more critical is the point in where your body has shifted away from burning fat to burning sugar. And that's coined a lot of different ways. It can be called your anaerobic threshold. In some cases, it's referred to as your lactate threshold. And I guess the biggest difference between that is the process in which we've determined these, these uh, outcomes. Lactate refers generally to bloodletting, where you're taking blood samples, where anaerobic threshold is a direct gas analysis, and that's what I do. I don't like to take blood. So we do a direct gas analysis. We measure the metabolic turn point in where someone is shifted away from using whatever degree of fat to exclusively using sugar, and we mark that with heart rate. And that gives us a very precise uh, understanding of how to train to improve the ability to use fat. And so the resting metabolic assessment is basically a direct gas analysis at rest. So you're commonly lying down for about 15 minutes in your street clothes or whatever you're wearing, and we're capturing a sampling of the respiration rate. And what it does is it's looking for markers of carbon dioxide relative to oxygen and how much oxygen you're processing relative to your mass tells us how many calories your body requires in that, in that state, in that rested state. And so that's like starting from ground zero, and then you start adding components to it. Your, your daily caloric requirements just getting around through your day your training activities. And if you're wearing a heart rate monitor, you see very clearly how many calories you expend while you're, while you're doing what you do. And then knowing what those caloric demands are, you can do a much better job at uh, taking care of your nutrition. On that resting metabolic rate, are you, are you getting also the, uh, the uh, um, respiratory exchange there? Yes. Okay, so you can tell somebody at rest you are burning only 20% fat. What's Absolutely. going on? Yes. Okay. And now, so that's really important because a lot of people, 
don't understand that they're that the that met- metabolism is highly plastic like you can change your ratios of how much fat you're burning when you're just sitting there and, and as well as how much fat you're burning when you're um, running and so so why do you why is it important for someone to understand these values when it comes to metabolic efficiency and how would that translate in terms of performance and training? God, you guys are good. That's a great <laughs> question. So keep in mind, okay, and you brought it up, so that's cool. I like that you know that. Respiratory quotient or respiratory exchange ratio is an indication of the ratio of fat versus sugar being used during the course of the test. And what happens is, let's say, for example, I find someone that in the rested state, their body's only accessing 10% sugar. Excuse me, 10% fat. Yeah, I'd be like, whoa, that's a, that's, yeah. that guy's a beast. <laughs> so, let's, so let's just say that in a 24-hour period, so I'll, I'll break it down for people. Let's say that your body is indicating that you're only accessing 10% of your energy from fat while you're at rest. And so my qu- question to them after the test is, okay, we've identified, uh, Elijah, let's just say it's you, and I'm just going to get hypothetical here for a minute. Let's sure. identify that your resting metal- metabolism is 2,500 calories. Okay. And we've identified that from that rested state, you're only accessing 10% of your fat stores at rest. That's not so, good. Right. So let's say that your last meal is at 8 o'clock. And then you get up at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm just going to make this simple. So you've effectively fasted for 12 hours. Yeah. And in the course of that rested state, your body is only going to use 10% fat. So in essence, whatever your caloric yield demand was, cut it in half. And all of that energy is coming away from your available sugar stores within your liver, your muscles, and your bloodstream. Oh, and maybe it's actually coming from my muscles because right. I can't burn fat. So I've right. got to break down the muscle to right. amino acid, then right. to glucose. Oh, God. So you're getting ahead it's of horrible, me. It's a horrible scenario. Well, okay, so what ends up happening, a lot of people think, ah, you know, I like to work out in the morning, but I don't like to eat anything before I, I work out because it just isn't set well in my stomach. So now they've gone and they've accelerated their caloric expense in that fasted and depleted state, and that's what's referred to as gluconeogenesis. Your body starts crunching away at the muscle to try to convert it to sugar to use that as an available energy source because it needs it. Your body needs sugar for fuel. Simple as that. And if you don't get it, it'll make it. And so... It's a hellbound train. If you don't start understanding how to feed properly, and incidentally, the, the equation is not like a death sentence. Let's identify that we're not doing a very good job at accessing our fat stores. Changes in the way you approach your nutrition, changes in the way you sleep, changes in the way you train can make huge implication over that. I've seen people turn it around and end up being able to burn 60% of their energy from fat at rest. And guess what? They wake up in the morning. They're not blown out. They're not depleted. They throw in a few calories, you know, have a little bit of oatmeal or something and get on to work. And their whole day is lovely. So it's, it's a big deal. It's, I think the, the, the test is underrated. And I think it, any athlete that's going to expose himself to work and can't seem to figure out why they keep falling apart in the middle of their training, this is a good test for them. Yeah. Also, if someone is um, either hungry all the time or is working out a lot and is still uh, does not have abs that you can see, 
there is an indication that they have a difficult time accessing their uh, fat stores, right? So someone can become more efficient at burning fat. They can actually uh, basically go for longer uh, at less like overall like cost to their tissues, and they can actually lose uh, body fat. A lot of runners are carrying around 10, 15 extra pounds of body fat, and that's not going to do them any good when they're trying to get over a wall, especially, you know, or do... Or, or just run for a long distance, right? Right. Well, the other thing that I find, too, is that the toughest people to convince it's a good idea are the people that appear to be leanest. Oh, that's true. Because their assumption is, well, look at me. I don't have a problem with my weight. I don't have a problem with my energy. I'm, I'm good. But they don't even realize how well they've adapted to their environment, the way they train themselves, the way they, they, they do the things they do, and how much better they could actually be if they were doing a much better job accessing energy. They may not even realize how catabolic they are, where their body's just crunching away at their available uh, uh, muscle instead of getting into sugar stores availability. Then you got these guys who talk about being fat adapted and things like this, and you know, there's a lot of opinion on the, on the subject. But I could just tell you that in over the 20 years that I've done this kind of work with people, the closer they get to a proper feeding strategy, the better they get. I mean, we can we could split hairs all day long about whether there's available uh, sugar within the muscle uh, versus the the liver, and we can go on to a whole tirade about um, uh, lactate and how that plays a role in energy use and people that are more capable accessing lactate as an energy source. But right, they can at, recycle. Yeah, but at the end of the yeah. day, it comes down to getting a little closer to what would be more uh, grass, which is generally recognized as safe, smart right. thing to do. I, I like to just get people, I mean, let's, let's get like a 30% a bump in change in respect to the way you approach your, your being as opposed to training and resting and such. And I think that that's massive. I just think it's massive. Yeah, I mean it is hard to if you're if you're trying to get to work let's say at 8 and you got to get a run in and you need to eat and then digest and it, it's kind of hard to eat before you run if you're working out in the morning. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's a timetable thing and and a lot of people they don't, you know, they don't quite get the whole athletic mentality. It's like uh, I mean, I'm by no means an athlete at this point in my life. Um, and someone might argue that, well, you get went out and ran this morning, that makes you uh, an athlete. Well, yeah, it's kind of ugly, though. But what I'm getting at is that I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day, seven days a week. I don't get up with an alarm clock. I just get up. I go to bed early. I go to bed knowing that I'm going to get up at 5. My day starts early. So if I was going to be at work at, say, 8 o'clock, my training is going to start early. I'm going to get up. By the way, I get up enough early. I start training about 6.30 in the morning. I'm up an hour and a half before it's time to get out on the road. So I have plenty of time to get some food, some coffee, you know, have my business in the bathroom, and then get out there and do my training. And I, I've created kind of a system. So it works for me. So um, you just got to arrange the clock. Get, deal with it. Get to yeah. bed at a decent time. You know, don't don't try to burn the candle at both ends. It doesn't work. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so there's a little bit of a tangent there. Now, once someone has taken that that test in, in terms of the VO2 and they've gotten their uh, their lactic threshold and their aerobic threshold, um, what do they then do with that information in moving forward? Or what do you recommend what someone would do, should do with that in terms of splitting up their training and stuff like that for an OCR athlete? 
Well, well, you know, that's a good question, too, because um, it's important to realize that these tests can be conducted a lot of places. But when I conduct these tests, they're with intent. I know the creature that I'm working with or creatures that I'm working with and what their habitations are. You know, what are they going to be doing with this information? What do they need to know? And how is it going to be best applied? And so what I try to do with the time that I have, and incidentally, when we do the testing on Saturday, it's by appointment. So we try to allocate enough time to spend some quality time with each person that we test and break down the information so when they walk away, they understand what the information means and how best to put it to work. And realize that it's a very, very unique and individualized process because you may come in and have a very efficient system and the way you might approach training might be polar opposite of what I might have someone that's very inefficient. Got so, it. So we try to tailor the information relative to the individual, relative to the data we have in front of us. We have empirical information so we can use this information to you know, get the crystal ball out and say, okay, so tell me, what is your game plan? What, what are you into? What, what's your race schedule? Uh, what, you know, we try to get in their heads a little bit and find out how this information is best going to be applied and having done all that, then we can do a better job in advising them. So, again, our goal is when they walk away to be like, ah, oh, man, I get this, and I can't wait to get started. And from the standpoint of the active metabolic work and how to employ heart rate-specific training, we cover that during the clinic as well. We will actually encourage people to bring heart rate monitors if they have them so that when we do some of the work running, we introduce them to some of the principles of training and, and how to apply them. I've written a book, incidentally, on heart rate-specific training for runners. It's called My Best Race. I wrote it some years back, and it's not applicable so much to OCR. I'm actually going to write another book, and it's going to be OCR-specific. But my book clearly indicates how the metabolic processes work relative to training. And if you just take nothing more away from it than understanding why and when and what is aerobic, why, when, and what is anaerobic, and how to employ proper motor skills, you're way, way ahead of the game. Excellent. I think uh, I was doing some research on your book, and I think that uh, if you model your new OCR book, um, which maybe you could call it uh, Richard Diaz and the Obstacle Order, have a great uh, book. Um, you uh, <laughs> no, I really, I seriously, I, I really, uh, I like how you you made the layout of the book approachable for people who might have a, a little bit of apprehension coming into the running game. I mean, you've got your your five friendly icons that people can kind of monitor what they're doing and then why they're doing it, and I think. Uh, are, are are you going to to create kind of a, a simple system like that for your uh, your OCR book that you're you're coming out with? You know, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I, I I could tell you that I wrote that book. It took me almost ten years to write that book, and it may not look like you go, you kid, you kidding me? It took you ten years to write this, um, but things changed over the years, and just the approach to things changed, and and how I approach things changed. And the one thing that I tried to impart in that book was simplicity. I wanted people that were kind of um, taken back by the technology and not really good at the whole physiology thing to be able to put that stuff to work and understand it. 
And so the icons, and I like that you said they were friendly because that was the intent. I wanted to make it simple. I, I, I know some of the great minds that have written on heart rate. I, I mean, I'm into it. I've been doing this forever. And I look at their books and I go, it's kind of complicated. you got to make it approachable, right? Oh, yeah. You know, I want the average consumer to be able to look at this information and go, oh, I get this. This is easy. And, you know, this is I, I've done gigs where I've tested, VO2 tested, 30, 40 people in a weekend, back to back. And realize that each test that I do and sit down with each person is about 30 to 40 minutes. So you test 10 people in a day, that's your day. And so I needed to find a way to explain this information in where they'd get it and they could walk away happy and feel good about what they paid for and move on to the next person. So I actually took what I've learned from working with so many people this way and try to make the work, as you suggested, approachable. And you've done a great job of that. Well, thank um, on, on, on that note, on something that, that you mentioned uh, about, um, I think you said, uh, empower the people or take them away from their technology, or maybe it was the other way around. Um, I had a question uh, that I, I, wanted, I meant to ask you, or I, I thought to ask you as I, was, uh, I did a, a little trail run on Sunday, and I... I, I it, it's on wearables and biometrics, um, and forgive me if it's skewing a little bit, but I just I, I wanted to ask the expert here. Um, I, I find I've got my Garmin Forerunner 220, and I've got my phone which has Strava, Map My Run, and I've got my heart rate monitor, and sometimes I'll have my music. Um, is there a point? I mean, I like to compare biometrics and 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 efficiencies of different programs and systems, but is there is there a point or maybe a suggestion that you have where where people just have too much going on, like too many wearables or too you know a Fitbit and and the Garmin and the phone and the is there a what what would you suggest that people people utilize to cut through all the BS and focus on how to get better? Is there a minimum? Is there, what, what, what do they need? Oh man, that's a big question. Oh, you can, you know, you can, as much as you want. Heart rate monitor. Here's my answer. Watch. I have people, I have people that, um, will try to tell me that they're intuitive, that, oh, I know my body. And, Commonly, I find that to be in error. They have a perception of reactionary outcomes. So, meaning that if you have a history of beating yourself up and you found that the next day you felt like crap, you know something now about your body. It's very difficult to discern without having first found out how your body responds to work clinically how in effect, in effect your body is faring relative to what you do. And so where I'm going with this is that I have athletes that are racing and they don't want to wear a chest strap. They don't want to wear a monitor. And I tell them don't. But while they're training, I tell my people, if you've got to wear a space helmet to get the right information in your system while you're training, let's get you a space helmet. So I have people wearing their phone if necessary. If they've got a Garmin that's collecting data and giving them all kinds of good information, great. I like audible metronome uh, as opposed to trusting an accelerometer. Um, 
And while training, let's use whatever we need to use in order to, to figure out how our body's responding and react to it. Now, if you're collecting data, which I think is really important, if you're collecting data, this data is going to develop a trend. And with this trend becomes this education. You start to understand what the mechanisms are, what the triggers are that cause you to, to succeed or to fail. And when you start to get that employment of these, these data points and you start to look at it over time, come race day, you do have a pretty good sense of what your body's responding like and what you can get away with and what you can't. And so for that day, you, you hammer it out. You know, it's today's the day I'm just going to put my work out there and I'm going to trust my body and I'm going to get it done. And I'm okay with that. Um, if you spook yourself by looking down at your heart rate monitor during a race every five minutes, you know, you may find that you underperform. That you happened might, to me. Yeah, you could scare yourself out of a good event. Um, so, but I, I do think it's really important that before you can start just discounting all this science and all this available technology we have today, you really need to have a better understanding of what's really going on. You know, same thing with cadence. I mean, I have people that, hey, is it okay for me to be at 170 versus one? No, it's not. <laughs> you're making a mistake. The reason you're at 170 is because you're overstriding. We don't want to do that anymore. Oh, so, there's one question I've always yeah. wanted to ask you. Yeah. When someone is running downhill, is it, is it a, I mean, you have to assume at certain grades their cadence is going to be pretty high. Is that something you vary on or you try to get people at 180 going downhill on a steep grade? Well, what happens with most people is they go downhill and they break their way down the hill. They're all up in their heels, they're overstriding, and they're slowing their body down in fear of falling. And in the course of that, their cadence is very, very slow. If you were to take someone like that and encourage them to bring their cadence up to 180, they're going to travel down the hill with less braking force, and they're going to have a better ride down the hill. And not only that, but when they get to the bottom of the hill and now have to run, their legs are going to be fresher. Now, if you're coming down a pretty steep grade and you're already at about 180 and it's not enough and you're starting to lose it, by all means, you need to jack that cadence up Got it. And, and get down the hill as best you can. More is better. I suggest that 180 represents home. Okay. This is where you want to spend the majority of your time in respect to um, your uh, your cadence. But let's say that you and Phil are racing and you're looking down the road and you see the, the finish line, you see the fire pit, and you just do not want Phil to beat you. Phil's in trouble. And you're both at 180, right? <laughs> you're both, yeah. you're bo both exhausting your 180 stride rate and somebody pulls the trigger and punches it up to 195. Well, if the finish line is close enough for you to get away with that, great, because the cost is going to go up exponentially, right? Yeah. So I guess the answer is you got to gotcha. you, you got to expand and contract your cadence, relatively speaking. But rarely do you want it to come below 180. All right. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. That's why I'm here. Okay. So you mentioned before that someone can have blatant inefficiencies with their uh, you know, that you will see on the actual uh, VO2 max. So, like, when I'm running, what are some indications that an athlete is inefficient? Um, would it be, like, 
if they're at a certain heart rate, they they're much slower than they are than you would expect them to be. You know, like um, a lot of people when they first start slowing down, their pace is way less than it would be, you know, compared to like what they expect in a race pace. Like, uh, is that is this question making sense? I think so. Okay. Well, um, I'm watching a test as it's unfolding. And I'm looking at the the metabolic consequence of work as we're on the fly. And I'm adjusting the load that they're dealing with. So I'm controlling speed. I'm controlling elevation. And I'm looking at, uh, as you referred to it, just uh, you and I talk, in the respiratory quotient. I'm looking at how the body is using energy. And I'm playing them essentially like a fiddle. I'm actually controlling the load relative to what the outcome is. Now, um, if I start seeing someone that like extraordinarily high heart rates relative to pace, well, that starts to throw up a red flag. If I see that their heart rate is relatively low relative to pace, that's something to consider as, as a performance issue, uh, meaning that's preferential, right? Got it. Um, right. But commonly... Red flags, uh, everybody's so unique. And so the question is not, oh, that's terrible. It's more a function of this is what it is. What can we do to make it better? Okay, got it. Man, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm excited to try this clinic out. <laughs> you know what? It's a hoot. It really is a hoot. And people, they don't, you know, the really ironic thing about this is there's, I don't know anybody else that does what I do the way I do what I do. So they don't have anything to, to uh, compare it to. So if they look at it and go, oh, geez, seems like a little expensive or whatever, they have no idea what they're comparing it to. It's a very unique opportunity for having someone come to your neighborhood that provides you this information where it may not have been there available to you before. I have people fly to see me from all over the country for the very same thing. They do it privately. It gets expensive. But they come. And they come often because they've identified how important this is. And a lot of them have friends that are performing better than they were before because they had that experience. Um, yep. You know, I'll give you an example, and I don't want to kick a dead horse here, but I love talking about this because it's really fun. Do you know who Nicodemus Holland is? I do. Okay. So Nick's one of my posse. Well, I other people probably don't. So Nicodemus Holland is like an ultra runner. He runs... 100 milers, right? 100 well, yeah. I mean, to 50, say Nick is an ultra marathoner <laughs> is like saying all cars, cars use gas. He did the uh, the Barkley Marathon. He's done it three times, I think. The he Barkley won, Marathon is a five-day event. He won the Barkley Marathon. He won the Barkley Marathon. So if you, if you haven't seen the Barkley's uh, Netflix, watch that documentary. It's amazing. All right. Sorry. Go so, ahead. So Nick is probably one of the premier ultra marathoners in the world. And there, obviously there are some guys that are a step above him, but he's still young. I expect that one day soon he's going to be taking his just desserts. Um, but anyway, Nick, I met him a while back, and, and you know, here's a guy that uh, we talked about Barclay, but he also came in second. He was the only American to ever podium at the Tour de Giants, which was a 205-mile ultra through four of the steep, steepest mountain ranges in Europe, with 80-some-odd thousand feet of elevation gain, 76 hours straight of running. And I take this guy, and I said, look, Nick, we need to work on the way you run, man. <laughs> you know, and he's like, what? Yeah. And so we set about, we did a test on him. We identified his threshold, which was about 140 beats per minute. 
his uh, anaerobic threshold? Yes, was about 140 beats what? per minute. And someone would think, well, that seems kind of low. But yeah. for him, I mean, there's other issues. There's stroke volume. There's cardiac output. He's just really efficient. And so I have him. I work on his gait. I help him correct his gait. And I set about to do a time trial. Run a mile at 140 beats per minute. Tell me how long it takes. Well, holding his heart rate down like that caused him to run about a 940 mile. Okay. A couple months later, he messages me and says, Dude, I can run 630 pace all day at 140 beats per minute. And when a guy like that tells you all day, he means all day. All day. Yeah. And yeah. he literally is capable of running all day and at about a three-minute mile faster than he was before at the same cost. And this is from a, a, a technique adjustment? This is from changing his heart rate responses and working on his efficiency. We worked on his economy. We worked on his efficiency. He's a great student. He, he put in the time. He put in the work. Okay. So, and he so runs absolutely beautifully now. So you're training him below that one. He was training at like a high heart rate in order to accomplish his pace. And then you you said let's let's take a step back. Let's let's improve your efficiency so that your pace is better at a, at a, your aerobic uh, area. And he worked on that for a while and then saw that improvement. And in a nutshell, that's pretty much accurate. Yeah. At the end of the day, what I did with him is I suggested, look, here's the way you should be running. Here's what your costs are, and here's what's going to help change the way your cost factor is relative to your efficiency. And he was a grip. He went out there and put in the work, and lo and behold, he got some astounding results. Now, there's other things that I think play into this, and I think one of the things that plays into it is the fact that the volume of work he's willing to put in is pretty astronomical. And yeah. so the turnaround for a guy like that is quicker than someone that's like running three hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the same thing when I started slowing down. Um, you, you get, you basically are able to go faster at a lower heart rate, right. which is a good thing. Right. Sure. That's the, that's the name of the game. Man. I, I call that paying wholesale. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Phil, you got, you still there? You got anything? I'm yeah, I'm here. Um, no, I'm just soaking it all in, man. I'm really enjoying listening to you guys talk about, um, things that I'm not an expert in. So please um, continue. I could go on all day. I'd love to ask a lot more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time, Richard. I appreciate that. And uh, let's uh, close it out. So so we've got, you know, running mechanics is important. Um, running, figuring out where you should be running in terms of metabolic cost. So what heart rate should you be training at? And then what should that look like running-wise? Those are the important things that will make you able to run, uh, put in more work, and get fewer injuries. Absolutely. And the best way to do that is face-to-face. So um, if you're listening to this podcast before July 23rd, you can, and you're in the Bay Area, you can go ahead and hit up the clinic at the Savage Barn in Pleasanton with Richard Diaz. And you said Miguel Medina will be there? That's the goal. Miguel's now, a nice uh, guy. He's yeah. been on the podcast a couple of times. I like Miguel. I think the other thing to point out is that they need to register online. Okay. And they don't want to wait to the last minute because uh, it's really important they get registered early because there's only so many people we can test. 
Oh, okay. You know, what's the uh, web address for that? It's it's naturalrunningcoach.net. Naturalrunningcoach.net. Uh, so, Richard, thanks a lot. That was a blast. Uh, Pleasure. Fun having you on. I'm usually yeah, listening to you. Thank you, Richard. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.